We're going to start off by thinking about what it means to be captive. Being captive is a horrible thing. It is a horrible thing to be held captive. Being captive is a horrible thing for human beings to experience. There are people in parts of the world, even today, right now this morning, who woke up being held captive somewhere. Through circumstances outside their control, they're held captive. And every Anzac Day, we remember, we remember with a solemnity of that those who have been held captive, those who have been service men and service women, who've been held captive as POWs. It still happens today, of course. It just doesn't make our headline news. There are people all over the world that through particularly wars and even rumours of wars, people are taken away and held captive, men, women and children, taken captive by despots and dictators and people who want to rule. I'm looking at you, Vladimir Putin. Now we'll get a cyber attack. To take children from Ukraine and over into Russia to re-educate them. People held captive against their will. How horrible it is to be held captive. And that is what happens in Genesis 14. In Genesis 14, we're about to see people being held captive by circumstances outside their control. We see this in this chapter in a moment as we read it. But there's something else we'll see. And I do want you to notice, there's something deeper going on here. God is showing us that we're not just often captive to circumstances outside our control. It's a captivity in Genesis 14 that happens because of our own foolishness and sin. We're often captive because of our own foolishness and sin. And we see this in Genesis 4. We see that we like the people, the very real people in this very real episode, in this very real moment in history, we are those who have no hope and we're in such captivity, not by an enemy out there, but by often our own worst enemy, our sinful self. How horrible it is to be held captive. Come with me, let's read Genesis 14, verse 1. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Ketelomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim. These kings made war with Barah, king of Sodom, Bashar, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Edmar, Shemember, king of Zebuim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea, Twelve years they had served Ketelaromah, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Ketelaromah and the kings who were with him defeat, came and defeated the Rephaim and the Aristorothicum, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in the Sheveth Kiriathium, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran and the border of the wilderness. And then they turned back and came to En Mishat that is, Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Melekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim. 
with Kittle and Remera and the king of Elam, and Tittle, king of Goim, and Raphael, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elassar, four kings against five. And the valley of Sidon was full of bitumen pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all the provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Enna. These were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and he defeated them and pursued them to Haboth, north of Damascus. Then he brought all back the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. How horrible it is to be held captive. As we see in this episode, it is Abram who rescues those captive. But what this is pointing to is something even greater than Abram. As we see in the Old Testament, every page points to Jesus. You cannot land on a page in the Old Testament and not see Jesus. And if you do, you've not read that page rightly. Every page points to Jesus. And what we see here is as Abram rescues those held captive, he shows us what Jesus does for us. But first we need to see, we need to experience even if we can, what's going on here is a world war of the known world. This is world war. This is not a local conflict. This is a world war that impacts everyone in the known world. And what you notice from verse 1 is this, friends, and particularly to our secular friends, the Bible is not a book of myth and legend because it constantly grounds things in human history. Do you see this in verse 1? In the days of. Here's what's interesting. Um, Not many years ago, scholars, secular scholars, would argue this event never happened. We didn't. We didn't have any knowledge of these kings. We didn't know who they were. It seems so far away in time and space, and we just think this was perhaps something made up. Until then, of course, we discovered that's not true. We found those kings and their names, and we found those places. Archaeologists do their great work, and they discover these things are real things in history. These were real battles in history. These were real places, real people. And we see as the Bible grounds it in this real event, this is a real event that affects people. And it's the event of sinful kings, of sinful men. Verses 1 and 7 describe, have you looked there, a world of sin and death. This is a world where we will brute force, we'll just get what we want. We will bully people till we get what we want. We will push them and shove them and take over until we get what we want. This is that kind of world. It's always been our world. Ever since Cain brooded in bitterness and anger against his brother Abel, till he shed his brother's life, did that fix things for Cain? Did ending his brother's life make his life better? It made it worse. When has ever hate and anger harboured in our hearts made life better for us? It has never made life better for us. Never. Zero percent. 
And yet we do it again and again and again. And here we see this conflict that really comes from men's hearts, but explodes onto a world scale. It's a geopolitical conflict and a collapsing of kingdoms. Now, in those days, uh, kingdoms were more like city-states. So think Bendigo with a wall around it, and that's the kingdom of Bendigo. Maybe the region around it of the farmers, perhaps they looked to the city for some sort of civil life and security and trade, but it was the city and the king in that city, and that was the kingdom. So what happens next with the list of kings we see is this is not just one king against another. This is a massive international security breakdown that affects everyone to the man, woman and child. I want you to imagine it's not far off, in fact, like our situation today. You watch the news, you watch our foreign ministers go to other countries and hopefully we become friends again so we can trade and maybe we won't have a war And what are you thinking as you watch the news, as people are trying to walk on eggshells, not trying to offend anyone, trade some things, let's not have a war here, but there is a war, how do we get involved in the war without not getting involved in the war, we'll give you some stuff but not soldiers. This is happening all the time. What does that make you feel as you watch that? What's your question? How will this affect me and my home? All that war over there, it's so far away, it won't affect me. But then when it starts affecting us, we start to worry. And we wonder, will those who are leading our nations, will they get it right? Will they get foreign relations right? Or else it'll come to my home. It'll spill into my house and affect me. That's what's happening here. Now, to understand the context of this time and place, if there was a service sheet in your hand, you would have a map on the the other side of the sermon outline. But it's on the screen there for us, and so I'm going to walk us through that because we need to see this. Now, this map is just from the ESV Study Bible. It's a helpful map. Um, It doesn't have everything, but we'll just have a look at that map to see what's going on and get a feel of what's happening for these people. You see from verses 1 to 7 on that map, um, these city-states, verses 1 to 7, this conglomeration of kings come into Canaan. So this is Canaan. This is the promised land. You see the Mediterranean Sea. This conglomeration of kings, Ketelaroma and, and his friends, uh, they come from places like Babylon, so uh, Iraq, Iran, that area. They come from over there, over the east. But some of them also come from the north, which is kind of modern-day Turkey. What that means is they've come from far away to take back what they think is theirs. So these kings have the smaller city-states in Canaan. They own them. They've got kings in those city-states, to be sure, but they're just puppet kings. And these bigger kings, their bigger kingdoms, their empires, have for 12 years had control of this region and its trade. But all of a sudden, those kings in Canaan, they rebel. So these powerful kings come from the eastern and northern half of the Fertile Crescent, They form an international conglomeration and they invade Canaan. Verse 4 in Genesis 14. Twelve years they had served Keteroloma, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. They don't want their overlords anymore. They don't want to be under such rulers. Being so far away, what are these kings going to do about it? Well, they invade and what they do, and the map shows us this, they defeat 
every part of Canaan. They don't just come in for the kings and those particular city-states that rebel. They come in and defeat the whole lot. Have a look. If you look on the eastern part of that map, that red line from Damascus, right at the top there, if you can see it, that red line from Damascus right down to El Paran, they defeat kings at every point. At every point. There are seven battles. Seven battles and they win every single one of them. And they go as far south as they can in Canaan. And then when they get to the bottom of Canaan and they strip the eastern side of every king and power and source of, 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 of potential power, they absolutely raise the place to the ground. They hit the bottom and they say, what do we do next? Let's go north and do it all again. And they head north. And as they go north, they keep defeating the Amalekites, the Amorites. And then we see them up just to the bottom of the Red Sea. They come to the Siddim Valley. And as they come to the Siddim Valley, there are some kings in those city-states that say, enough is enough. We're going to stop this. So in the sacking of those cities, we see this causes four kings, sorry, five kings, five kings to fight the four. So we see in verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admar, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela. There are five kings. We've got five kings against these four conglomerate kings. We maybe will be able to outmatch them. Five kings. And they go, these five kings, to fight the four in the valley of Siddim. Now, war is a horrible thing, and I think, friends, that ought to be a given. War is a horrible thing. I think one of the most stressful jobs in the world would be that of a combat soldier. To be in combat, as far as I can gather as an outsider's perspective and talking to a few people that have been in combat, it is chaotic and it is humanly traumatic. It is full of trauma. And what we see in this combat is it's that It's chaotic, traumatic, it's ugly. You see what happens in this particular battle? Not only is there death by sword or death by spear, there is death by drowning in fiery bitumen pits. The coalition of kings led by Sodom and Gomorrah is soundly defeated by this conglomeration of kings from the north and the east. We actually don't even see the king of Gomorrah again. Whereas next week we'll meet the king of Sodom, we don't meet the king of Gomorrah. It's an ugly, ransacking, devastating, people-taking event. And then it gets personal. Because of all the people we've come to know so far in this series, we read Genesis 14 verse 12, we've come to know Lot a little bit. And they took Lot, Abram's brother. He was dwelling in Sodom with his possessions and they took him and his stuff and his people and his family and they went on their way. Now, Abram's nephew Lot, of course, he was the one that chose for himself the lush land for his own security in life. But now he's taken in an insecure way. His life is uncertain now. He's taken away. And there's no one to do anything about it. Because as you see from the Valley of Siddim, as they go north, this 
whole train of captive possessions goes up, 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 and as far as Dan. They're about to exit Canaan. And who is going to do anything about it? Well, that's when we see the real king of Canaan leads the way. Verse 13. The one who had escaped and came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Anna, these were the allies of Abram. You see, there's a survivor. There's one survivor. And this survivor makes it 40 kilometers to Abram's tent. He's a survivor of slaughter and enslavement and the culminating battle. This person is probably traumatized, but he can get out, this person, he or she can get out and tell Abram, the Hebrew, what's happened. Now, the word, this is the first time the word Hebrew appears in our Bibles. The word Hebrew comes from Eber. It's one of Abram's ancestors. Why is it here? I think to delineate the fact that Abram is a foreigner living in this land. He's living with these other men, and these other men have accepted him. They're his friends. But he's not lost his identity. He's not lost who he is and what God has promised him. He's in the world, but he's not of the world. Whereas Lot was different, wasn't he? Lot was happening to be of the world, but not Abram. He's, he's, he's able to live in this place, make friends, and get along. But now Abram knows that his kinsmen, his family, has been taken. It's an extraordinary scene filled with meaning for us today. Have a look at verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Did you hear that? Did you hear what Abram heard? Not only has this, this coalition of kings been defeated, but also Abram's family has been taken. But I want you to notice this. What are Abram's options? See, Abram, how could have Abram responded to this news? I think he could have responded the way we often respond to other people's misfortune, if it's particularly their fault. How could Abram respond? He could have said, oh, Lot. What in Canaan's land were you doing in Sodom? What in all the known world were you doing in Sodom? The last time I checked, Lot, you were living outside of Sodom. That was bad enough. You put your tent outside of Sodom. Now I hear you were living in Sodom. Of course you're going to get captive, you idiot. Do we respond like that? I think often we can, we do. Abram could have just expressed his frustration with Lot's poor choices and left him to taste his own medicine. Well, this is what you get, Lot. You didn't want my protection. You didn't want to share the land with me. This is what you get. Abram could have felt that Lot didn't deserve his help. And so lead Abram to believe the best chance everybody's got in Canaan from now on, since the whole place has been raised to the ground, the best chance Canaan has is I'll just stay where I am and everyone can come to my tent for safety. Come on in, weary, traumatized person. And if you've got any friends, come to. That's the best option perhaps Abraham could have had, but that is not what Abram does. See the map? That conglomeration of kings heads north with their enormous plunder and people captive. They've got Lot. This is an enormous train of people. 
This is a massive... They've basically taken a nation and they've gone to Dan. But what they don't see is this. Abram is on their trail. Abram goes hunting. Here is Abram doing what needs to get done. Yet he's doing what no other king could get done. Here is this foreigner, albeit somewhat of a nomad, not living in a city-state, but dwelling in a tent, and he goes to get it done. And he doesn't have all the resources of an eastern Mesopotamian army. You see what he's got? 318 men. In today's terms, and even in those terms, that is a small battalion against the size of a force that is a multi-combat brigade team. By the way, which has beaten the opposition eight times by now. This is a battle-hardened, veteran, multi-brigade combat team, and Abram is taking 318, not even just like, you know, kind of rounding it up a bit to make it sound better. Yeah, we got like 320, 350 guys. I don't think we can handle this. No, he, the reason it's 318, because that's, is that, is, that's all we've got. Okay, let's go. 318. Verse 15. Because he has 318 and he, fight, he fights a force of a conglomeration size, Abram has to use his smarts. He goes tactical. Verse 15. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobar, north of Damascus. The real king of Canaan leads the way. Here is the one who is the father king by promise, God's promise, of course, but here is also the one who is the king because he defeats all his enemies, Psalm 68, one of our cross-reference readings. And Abram doesn't just defeat them, he chases them. He chases them like a fox out of a henhouse. Get on out of here! Get out of this land! This is my land! He pursues them, sending a message. There's a new king in town. And sure, his palace is a tent, but God has promised him the whole land. Get out. And with this victory, the Lord used Abram to save the land of Canaan. To save his nephew Lot. And not just lead a standing army, by the way, but also from the north as he travels south with them. What does he lead now? A host of captives in his train. A host of captives. And he gave gifts to men. Verse 16. Then he brought back all the possessions, not just some, all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsmen lot with his possessions and the women and the people. The way the Bible describes it, it is manifold. He brings the whole thing back. What was taken out of this land, what was gutted and taken, is all brought back, nothing missing. What a triumphal procession. This is the procession of a victorious king. 
See, when the battle is won in ancient times, you don't just win the land back. You, you take everything. Winner takes all. Here is the winner. He has taken all. So not only is Abram promised the whole land that he walked over in Canaan, we saw in last episode, he's promised that whole land. Then he takes all the possessions of the land and he wins it in battle. He owns the whole thing, rightfully, because he's the king. He's the only king that got it done. And with these possessions, what does he do? He leads it. This fighting king, empowered by God, leads it. Next week we'll see he gives gifts. He gives gifts to the existing kings who weren't there at the battle. Melchizedek. Sodom comes along, king of Sodom. He gives gifts. And today we see he does this because he's the real king of Canaan. You'll see point three on the outline there. Uh, point three up there. The wording of worded that intentionally so. He led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. That's a quote from Ephesians 4. So we heard our cross-reference readings this morning from Psalm 68 first, then Ephesians 4. See, in Psalm 68, that's in Psalm 68, that quote. And then Paul, the Apostle Paul, picks up that quote and puts it in Ephesians 4. Why? Because he says, that's Jesus. That's what Jesus does. Jesus does what we see Abram does. Jesus wins as king. Jesus leads a host of captives. He frees people and he leads them in his train. And Jesus calls that the church. And Jesus is the one who is the king who rightfully owns everything, who buys people back, fights with people, wins them back, ransom, sealed, delivered as his, and he leads them. Jesus leads a host of captives in his train. Jesus rescues those who are captive. Briefly back in Genesis 14, how was it that Lot was taken captive? Was it by circumstances outside his control? Was it that Lot was not responsible at all for his situation? How did Lot get to be in that situation? It started for Lot way back when he started tracking away from faithfulness to the Lord and started trusting in other things, namely himself. Lot had been with Abram back in Egypt in Genesis 12. He had seen a well-watered land. He had seen prosperity and security and power. He'd seen it. He'd tasted off that table and he wanted it. And as he did, he tended to track away from the God who keeps covenant promises, who says, I will take care of you. I am all you need. So that in Genesis 13, Lot chose for himself all the security this world offered by choosing the better land of the Jordan Valley for himself, which had meant he lived closer and closer to Sodom, till in this episode we see he's living in Sodom himself, which is a city, by the way, described in Genesis 13, verse 13, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Imagine that on the town sign. I think Bendigo says, welcome to the greater city of Bendigo. I like to joke around and say, what it's saying is, it's greater than any other city. Welcome to the greater city, Bendigo. Yeah, it's not a funny joke, I get it. My hometown where I grew up, Tamora, New South Wales, 
uh, someone spray-painted on the sign, you know, because you always got some sort of motto or something about your town, spray-painted it, and for the life of me, for all the, for all the understanding in Tamora, I could never understand why the council let it live there on that sign for about 10 years, spray-painted in black paint, welcome to morons. We let it be there. I think it says now, home of two flying spitfires. But imagine that. Here is a city that you could put on the sign, Genesis 13, verse 13. It's renowned in that part of the world. It's still renowned today. It's a city full of sin, of wickedness, of evil. Not just kind of like, you know, eating a magnum ice cream is sinful kind of thing, but as in actual evil against other people. A place where you will not survive but may even be taken captive and we'll see that happens in a few episodes' time. Now, to be sure, the New Testament in Second Peter describes Lot as a righteous person. Why does it do that? And we'll see this in a few episodes' time. How can, how can the New Testament, how can Peter say Lot's a righteous person? Well, Peter himself, of course, would know this. We're justified, we're righteous by faith. We're not righteous because we're particularly good people. We don't get righteous because we sort of somehow grow more righteous and then we're kind of leveled up to God's standard. Now, you're only righteous, you can be the worst of sinners, Paul says, or Peter himself who writes that letter knows his own sin and failures often. The only way we get right with God, righteous, is by faith. And who else knows this, by the way? Who is the father of those who are righteous by faith? Like, who is the one that we look to and say, well, yeah, that, that's how you get righteous by faith? It's Abram. But what the Bible is showing us here is, isn't it possible that people who are even righteous by faith, safe and sound with Christ, can still be tempted to track away from him in life at times? I am a middle-aged man. Sounds like we're in some sort of club, aren't I? My name's Russ. I'm a middle-aged man. It's been three days since I bought my last sports car. Or Hilux, depending on your version of a sports car. Middle-aged men, even Christians, there are temptations for middle-aged men to start tracking away from Christ. Yeah, we know when we go to church, and yeah, but we start putting our tent of our life near things we think, that can't hurt me. Look, I'm bored and I'm tired. What's a little scrolling on the internet at 11 o'clock at night? My wife's already gone to bed. What's that going to do? Or it's, I feel very angry, I hate this person, just want, their, want ill for them. That's okay, isn't it? Because, that, that, you know, they deserve it. We start tracking away. And I'm just speaking to middle-aged men. You may know your own temptations. Where are our temptations, just like Lot, that we just start tracking away from trust in Christ but walking with him? This is Lot. But there's good news for us to see for Lot and you and I. We need to see this that even people of God's covenant promises can be people who fall into sin, like kings who fall into bitumen pits. But God comes to do something about that. Of course, falling into sin doesn't happen naturally all at once. It's a series of small decisions. This can be Lot, this can be us, this can be me. 
But we need to see what Abram does for Lot. Abram prefigures, he foreshadows, he does what Jesus does for us. As we saw, we know the relationship between Lot and Abram. It's complex, right? Uncle, nephew, Lot keeps tracking away from the Lord. And what does Abram keep doing throughout Genesis? He keeps going to rescue him. He rescues Lot who is captive here. Now, you and I can see this. Does Lot deserve this? He doesn't. Friends, do any of us deserve it? Do you deserve rescue? Did you earn it? Can you pay it back? We don't give for the sake of gospel ministry to pay back for our salvation. It's not a transaction. It's grace. For even lots of believers in the Lord, but he needs rescue. Why would he get rescued? Why would Abram do that? Why would the Lord rescue us? The answer is grace. Abram rescues Lot who is captive because his kinsmen, part of his people. Can you see now? Jesus in the same way sees us as his people, his kinsmen. We are his family. So if we get captive to the things of life, perhaps by circumstances outside your control, but if we're honest, sometimes we're the ones that lead to those circumstances. Our own foolishness and sin often captures us. We are as undeserving as Lot. We are as captive to our own sin. Your anger, your bitterness, your lust, your habit of lying, your pride, your gossip, your slander, it pervades you. All your sin, friends, you are not able to live in that city and survive. You'll be taken away by it. You'll be captured by it. It'll overtake you and you'll have no help and no hope on your own. You and I are captive to our sin. You and I are powerless to break free and we need rescuing. We are undeserving. Just like Abram didn't have to lift a finger to help his kinsmen, Jesus didn't have to do a thing. But for his glory and by his grace to us, for the love of his kinsmen, his people, he comes and fights for us. He fights for us by going into the heart of the battle of sin that holds us captive, by going into the darkness that's at the cross, and he throws it down in death. And the one who deserves all the glory as the rightful king humbles himself and gets slain in the last moment on that battle. He descended into the darkness in the moment of that battle, pursuing the conglomeration of that enemy into the jaws of death, into the pit, deeper than any bitumen pit. He is our king. He dies for his people. He gets done what no one else can get done. And then, just as we saw in John's Gospel recently, on that first day of the week, when there's dawn over the horizon, and still with drying tears, we look and we see the liberator from sin's captive lair rises up, the defeater of death, and he leads a host of captives in his train and calls it the church. And he says, there's a new promised land, friends, and you'll inherit it forever. Are you looking forward to it? It's not Canaan. It's a new heavens and a new earth. How horrible it is to be held captive. How wonderful it is to be free. What is a church? We are a host who were once captive, 
led now in freedom by Jesus. I wonder at times what the world that looks on sees. When the rest of Canaan saw the events unfold back then, when they watched as this king rescues and leads his host of captives, when they saw that, do you wonder what their response is? We'll see next week, come back. But for now, do you see the right response to such grace, such rescue? Well, firstly, it's a couple of things. And firstly, it's with thanks. A church of all things is a thankful people. Not a complaining people. That is not our default position. Although we'll have complaints and aches and pains and conflicts, absolutely. But, but we're known as a thankful people. A joyful people. Of course, it doesn't mean everyone has to be of the same size smile. God has made us with different mouths and smile rates. But it means we have a genuine, joyful thanks where we were undeserving. Christ came to set us free. And our heart response, therefore, is worship. A Christian is someone who worships Christ, their rescuer. A Christian is not someone who politically leans in a certain direction. A Christian is not someone who even theologically just thinks certain things. A Christian is not someone who preferentially would like their personal preferences to be met in X, Y, Z ways. A Christian is a liberated sinner led by Jesus, worshipping Jesus. So that means, secondly, for the people around us, for the modern-day Canaan, that is the people of Bendigo and beyond, there are people in need of rescue too. The church is meant to be a compelling community, a host of captives led in the train of Jesus that people look on and go, wow, I want that king who rescues me from my captivity. But if a church is going to act in a way that's not like that, a worshipping community of Jesus, how compelling do you think that is to the rest of Canaan? My friends, we have an opportunity before us to actually live like we believe this, to rejoice like this is true. Which also means lastly, thirdly, third and last, there's always three points. Thirdly, when we look at the rest of Canaan around us, we just don't look at them and go, well, it's their fault. Now they got stuck in their own problems. You know, they deserve it. You know, we wouldn't want to kind of help them at all. Tell them about our king because they, they have caused their own problems. They are their own worst enemy. Let's not, that's not, of course, their attitude, is it? No, we look at them and we say they need the real king too. And we might look around and say, there's only 318 of us. In fact, I'll tell you what, there's far less <laughs> here at least. But if God can use Abram and then point to Jesus, if God can use the cross of death to save and give life, well, we as this host of captives rescued and rejoicing can tell other people what Jesus has done too.
Maybe we can practice that over morning tea. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Your word preached from the pages of the Bible into our hearts. And now we pray that you would continue to do your work in us by your spirit. He who is God, the Holy Spirit, to work by your word resonating in our minds, that we would remember these things. That you would move our hearts to believe these things, to see that we were always undeserving. And yet we are right and freed by faith in Jesus, our rescuing King. Father, there are so many people in our surrounding land of modern-day Canaan that need to know this too, that need to see him and follow him in his train. And so we pray that whatever happens in the days ahead, whatever comes over the horizon for us, that we would be ready to, like we sing in a moment, that we would speak and say, you have rescued us, you have freed us from captors' chains free to serve your holy name. And so we will sing of all you've done for you are on our side. And we say this, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.